Today on the programme, we're keeping things ticking along nicely in the company of some smart entrepreneurs whose businesses are, appropriately enough, running like clockwork. We're meeting the founders of a company born out of a desire to reimagine how watches are bought, sold and collected. And we'll hear from a new and innovative Swiss watchmaker that emerged from its co-founder's profound commitment to creating a self-winding watch 100% sourced from the circular economy. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. A little later, we're off to the home of horology to meet the team behind eco-innovative watchmakers Ide Genève. The brand was a meeting of minds between a founder committed to circularity and sustainability and a designer passionate about creating a brand that respects the environment as much as the customers it serves. But we start today here in London. Subdial is the British online watch trading platform, aiming to make buying and selling pre-owned watches both more transparent and more focused on building a real community of collectors and enthusiasts. We'll hear from Subdial's co-founders Ross Crane and Christy Davis about their quest to reduce the risks involved in secondary markets and why removing some of the opacity behind data and pricing is gaining traction, even from the big industry players. It's a great pleasure to welcome Ross Crane and Christy Davis to the show. Ross, Christy, welcome. Great to have you here. Thanks for coming in to tell us a little bit more about the kind of subdial story. Before we talk about the business, I guess, your sort of shared history goes back a little bit further. And I'm always intrigued by those moments when entrepreneurs kind of initially get together where they're kind of rubbing up against each other the wrong way, as it were. Or did, did something about when you were working together or when you first met each other that you were like, hey, this is someone I could work with. Let's have a bit of that, that background. Um, Ross, I'll come to you first of all. Take us back then. Yes, how, how long ago was it? It was, what, seven years ago now. We were working together in professional services at EY. So we were working on big kind of platform development programs for FTSE 100s and S&P companies. Initially, I resigned my role to do a different startup. So I'd raised a little bit of funding to do a kind of food tech business. And Christy actually quite quickly approached me and said, tell me a bit more about the idea. We had that conversation. And I think maybe like a week later came back and said, would you be interested in having me join you as a co-founder? And I think it didn't take me very long to jump on that idea, although it's not actually something I'd considered at all. And with hindsight is one of those things I think is completely crazy that I thought that I could have done the whole thing by myself. And I think it's one of those things that those naiveties that as a first time founder, you probably overlook, you're massively overconfident in your own abilities to do everything and anything. So yeah, it it wasn't definitely wasn't a hard decision. I think we kind of, I guess EY is such a big place that, you know, you kind of have these different teams that start to form, that start to do a type of work together and then build up a bit of expertise there. And they kind of have this kind of whole product they'll start to sell. And so I think, you know, we ended up for a couple of years jumping between a few different projects with a bit of a team that was kind of smaller and growing and kind of had a bit of a, a camaraderie. And so, yeah, I think that's where that's where it started with a few nights in Ronnie Scott's and along the way and um, yeah there we go and you can't remember the detail about that one um, and then obviously you did you obviously had this sort of first startup which you just mentioned Ross I mean one of the sort of truisms or cliches I guess about business that I often ask founders on this program is that you learn far more when things don't work out than when they do is that one of those cliches that is actually instructive I think so. I think the business that we set out to do was, I think, conceptually very elegant, or at least that's what we thought, was sort of approaching the kind of meal kit delivery 
service in a different way that didn't involve delivery and had little hubs. And I think we both really rallied around intellectually around the idea and thought it was somehow very appealing because in its sort of simplicity and its elegance. As first time founders, I think you draw a lot of energy from your customers kind of excitement about what it is that you're doing. And I think with that business, we never quite got that level mm. of buy in. And I think the the difficult decision for us then was having announced to the world, to our family, to our co-workers that we were leaving and we were doing this thing and pitching it till we were blue in the face and getting everyone equally as excited as we were to within six months turn around and go, no, we were wrong. This isn't the right idea for us. We think we could better deploy money, our time and everything else on something else. I think is a difficult moment of swallowing your pride. We definitely learned a lot from the mistakes or the, when things went wrong. But I guess I'd kind of almost frame it in a different way, which is that I think our ability to put things down because they weren't working, I think was yes. probably as instrumental or has been as instrumental as our ability to kind of recognize when things are right. We'd made a series of personal career decisions, each one of which felt reasonable. And then by the end of eight months, you're at a place that you never would have jumped to, right? <laughs> if somebody said, hey, cool, so do you want to quit your job? You won't have any way of paying a salary. You won't actually have an idea of what you're actually working on but you'll just be sat in your front room trying to do something. I'd be like, absolutely not. It almost reminds me of like a kind of peep show thing where like each decision feels like reasonable until you kind of get to some <laughs> totally unreasonable thing at the end. But yeah, I think. I, I think that's far from unique in a certainly first time founder stories. And let's do a sort of ripple dissolve then to 2018. With that backdrop, how did the sort of subdial story coalesce? Was it one of those things where precisely perhaps because of that background you both described, when this hoved interview, very quickly you were like, this is the thing that drives that kind of engagement, not just for you and your team, but also for potential customers. How did that moment, was, it, was there a eureka moment or was it a bit more of a slow burn? I think it was, it was much more of a slow burn. I think we, we had a sense that there was an opportunity in this market to do something both interesting for consumers and that would motivate us to build something that we were excited about. And it, it was a relatively easy thing to test out. So we kind of spun up a website, put out some ads looking for people to sell their watches. And I think quite quickly, we got a bite on that. I think that re reflecting on the early days of Subdial versus the early days of the food startup, I felt like we knew what good looked like because we hadn't had it before. So when people started kind of coming to us actively and seeking to sell stuff, there was obviously this kind of pent up demand that wasn't being served by existing businesses in the industry. That was a big moment for us. And I think we we maybe trialed it for three, four months. And then we had another sit down and we said, like, does mm. this feel like the thing? Do we think we can really establish something different in this industry that hasn't been done before that really suits what our strengths are? And I think the answer to that was a fairly resounding mm. yes. And, and since that point, haven't really looked back. Well, let's talk a bit more in a bit more forensic detail then about Subdial's kind of approach, because it is in the business of buying and selling watches. It's tapping in, obviously, to this very, very complex and actually quite hard to read secondary market where there's potentially enormous amounts of money to be made. But it's all quite confusing, I guess, to some looking from the outside. What were those early moves that enabled you to feel like you could navigate that still kind of quite inchoate market with some degree of dexterity? What was actually happening? So I think there was a sense or part of the kind of conversation that we had to have with ourselves was what can we bring to this that other people are not currently bringing? And do those things give us a meaningful competitive advantage versus existing players in this industry? And I think the initial kind of starting point was, well, the two things that we know that we're good at are building technology 
and understanding data. And within this industry, there is for sure a potential play to collect a huge amount of data, turn it into useful information and use that to better understand the demand, the supply, the demand, the prices, the velocity of sale of, let's say, a pre-owned Rolex Mariner. And our hypothesis going in was if we can do that and if we can better understand the market and the speed of sale, we can trade this thing more predictably than anyone else, which not only allows us to be more profitable, but allows us to pay more for it and sell it for less because we can accurately predict how quickly it will turn. Mm. Yeah, I was, was going to say, I think when we first started the company, I think we just started running at it. <laughs> um, and it's almost in hindsight that you start to realize, okay, well, that like, what were the factors that ended up being particularly influential and important? And I think, you know, there's a huge technical aspect to this around the data model and delivering true marketplace price and transparency around that. But I think actually quite a simple story to it is, I think we understood that building a business was about really focusing on a customer, understanding what they want and what they need and trying to build something for them and fitting a business in around that, right? And then kind of working out, well, how, how do we make this into kind of a profitable business? And I think that is a fairly common approach in a lot of markets. And I think it's not a particularly common approach in watches. And so I think really from day one, I think we just approached it in a slightly different way, which was not, how do I go and make money? How do I make most money on this transaction? How do I extract more from this trading? It was going like, okay, look at these particularly real kind of enthusiasts and collectors so people who are trading very frequently so it's not a kind of one-off transaction where you get you know a bonus and you go i guess i should get a watch it's people who are really quite engaged in this and spend a lot of time on forums and on instagram groups and private whatsapp groups whatever and that's kind of it's a real big part of their life and i think given that they're so passionate about it i think trying to build something for them has been really really fun and i think is in a very simple way, I think that has been quite distinctive about the way that we've approached it within this market. Well, yeah, I find that really interesting. And I think there's something important to be said about categorization, you know, so clearly from the outset, it was important to serve that community. Mm. And I, we've, on this program, I've spoken to Ben Clymer from Hodinkee before about, it's, it's not just fandom or enthusiasm for watches. Well, it yeah. is an obsession. It's <laughs> extraordinary. And it's actually quite unlike... Even people who are really into contemporary art or cars or motorbikes, whatever it might be, something about watches, I don't know if it's because it's with you a lot of the time, but it isn't if you have many. Uh, have you come any closer to understanding, identifying the kind of truths behind that peculiarly intense obsession? Because it seems mm. to be a bit of an outlier. Mm. I think I, I have no one simple answer to that. I think there's a few things. One is it's an incredibly diverse category and there's potentially something for everyone. So... There is no one type of watch enthusiast. There's people who are crazy into their vintage. There's people who are crazy into just one brand. There's people who have no interest in Rolex. All they care about is small independence where they make less than 100 watches a year. And it's all about that. There's people where it's all about the military history and they'll only buy stuff that has links to. And it all comes with, it's more like, does it have provenance? How do I understand who the original owner was? Does it come with photographs? And so I think there's a lot of different ways for people to kind of get excited by the industry. And I think as a, and I'm sort of um, reluctant to use the word, but as an asset class, it is kind of uniquely accessible in that you can buy an interesting vintage watch for a couple of hundred pounds. And it might be from a brand that everyone's, you know, it might be an Amiga, it might be a Longines, and it's from the 60s and it's, you know, nine karat gold. And that is pretty amazing, all the way through to spending millions of pounds for an independent watch. So it's something you can get into quite easily. You get to enjoy, I mean, if the, the other kind of thing that I'm, into his cars and I would love to have a collection of classic cars but if you compare 
the difficulty of getting into that industry, the level of knowledge that you have to have, the amount of space you have to have to store it and insure it. And every time you climb into it and drive it, you devalue it a bit because you're putting miles on the clock. And watches don't have any of that. You can wear it every single day and not devalue it at all. In fact, the watch quite likes being worn and it helps it keep running and all of that stuff. I think there's an awful lot of different things to it, but I think probably the most important thing is people find a different hook for them, whether it's the history, whether it's the fashion, whether it's the craftsmanship that really draws them in and keeps them there. And I think the other interesting thing for us is to watch people's interests evolve. Someone might come to us, you know, let's say two years ago, and all they were interested in was vintage Rolex and they had a collection of 30 and that's all they bought and sold and that's all they knew about. But in a conversation, let's say they were down at the office one day dropping off a watch and they spot a watch on someone's wrist or you know something's brought out just to show them out of interest and you hook them in a new line i guess it's a little bit like art in that way and that just sort of plants a little seed in their head that next time you see them in two months time they ask you about it and they go i can't have them stop thinking about langer or whatever it is that they last saw and they go i saw one on your website can i see it and that starts a whole new kind of route for them where they just discover something totally new and then they start, which is amazing for us. You kind of get to go on that journey with them and plant those seeds or help support them as they go, okay, now I've got way too many vintage Rolex. I'm into something else. Okay, let's pass a few of these along and move into something else. I want to just ask you a couple of very quick final questions because mm. I'm mindful that the clock, as you would know, is, is ticking, it's ticking on the session. This point about building community, is that another... I mean, you're already tapped well into that, but is in terms of the, the value of the business and what the business can offer to a larger demographic of people, is building that community something that you really want to focus on? And I sense, Ross, from the conversation that that's always been at the heart of the operation. Those stories are obviously amazing, but this idea of building something, and I know there's other things in the works perhaps that speak to this a little bit, building this community, building a club, that must be very fundamental as you see the next few years unfolding. I think it's important for two reasons. I think as members of this community ourselves, I think we see the value in creating a forum for people in this market where they can trade or connect or learn or do all of the things that they want to do. So I think there's some of it which is purely done for passion and pleasure and the watch meetups that we have kind of speak to that. But I think there's a there's a more meaningful business side to it as well, which is I think the next phase of this journey for Subdial is to start to leverage the power of the network to deliver the next kind of step change in how people trade. Where we would like to go to is to say, if we can understand what is in the collection of the most passionate kind of watch enthusiasts in the world, what those people are after, we can start to facilitate transactions in a way that again, allows us to take another chunk of friction, another chunk of cost out of every single trade and increase the certainty while still delivering that same kind of frictionless experience with people. Mm. And I think that for us is incredibly exciting. I think that's the next phase of growth for us. And I think we see it as another kind of step change in what we can deliver to people as a service. 200 years ago, people would buy, sell, or pre and watch through a dealer. <laughs> 100 years ago, right? And today it's the same thing. They've just got a website. And I think for us, we feel like the revolution around marketplaces that has changed the nature of e-commerce has not landed in pre-owned luxury or kind of high value items at all really and i think we feel quite strongly that the answer to that is through communities actually having a community powered business model for how you're trading so yeah i think i completely agree yeah i think i think it, it's not just like look this is fun but it's like i think that this is how you kind of unlock a problem that nobody's been able to unlock so far and it's fun and it's super fun, fun yeah I, I did just want to very briefly this is my last question ask you about i think people will hear from the way you both speak about the business and the facets of it that 
interest you and that you're passionate about, that you're deeply thoughtful about it, and that in that sense you're not disruptive for the sake of it. But precisely to this point, it is disruptive in the big picture. What is the response, engagement or lack of from some of the heritage marks? You've reeled a few off. We know that certainly Swiss watchmaking is not... Uh, the most progressive in terms of business models and the way it operates. People who maybe want to buy a watch retail suddenly learn how complicated even that transaction can be. What's the engagement been like? Because, I don't know, does your enthusiasm (laughs) resonate with them? Are are you viewed as a weird interlopers? What's what's it like? I I think that perception is changing over time and I think there's still a way to go. But I think if you can be seen as a positive force for change in a historically murky, opaque pre-owned market where people are out to make a quick buck, pay the lowest price they can for something, swap parts in and out so that no one knows what they're getting. I think if you can be seen as a positive, responsible player in that space, the brands will at least respect what it is that you're doing. But I think there's also a kind of growing recognition amongst the big marks that the pre-owned market is actually inextricably linked to the primary market. And the reason that there are queues around the block and around the calendar, you know, five years for a Rolex, 10 years for a Patek, The reason those queues are there is because there is this huge demand for those watches, obviously. But so much of that demand is linked to the fact that that watch is in itself an asset and retains its value and can be bought and sold in the future. I think a lot of people would think very differently about dropping £100,000 on a Patek if they thought that money was simply gone and could never be, if it needed to be, redeemed in the future for something else. And so I think there is a growing recognition that for their primary to really be successful, they need to be at least in some way supportive of the secondary market because it has knock-on effects. And I think there is still a lot of room to improve with some of the players in the secondary market, but I I hope that there is a growing recognition that the most transparent stand-up players, and it's not just us who are trying to operate in a kind of clear, transparent, trustworthy way in the secondary market are actually additive yeah, to right. the market as a whole. And I don't think, I mean, we haven't, in fairness, had much interaction with brands directly. And I don't think, you know, we're not sitting here going like, can't wait to win these brands over and, you know, bring them into what we're doing. As you say, I think we'll just build a business in the right way. And I think we'll kind of do it in a way that we think is good for brands and good for the kind of market in general and yeah, see, <laughs> see what happens from there. It, but easy, yeah, you're right. It's, yeah, it, it's not as easy as picking up the phone and giving Rolex a call and saying like, hey, can we get a meeting to like talk things through? So I think you kind of just accept that those are different kind of conversations that are going on and try and build a good kind of business. Christy Davis and before that, Ross Crane of Subdial. You can learn more about Subdial and join the club yourself. Head to subdial.co. Next up, founded in 2020, Idée Genève is an award-winning watch brand and the first to come out of the circular economy. The founder's mission? To create watches that truly reflect the values and principles of people who are committed to the fight against climate change and who wish to have a positive social and environmental impact. The materials used in Idée Genève's watches have a lower carbon footprint than the industry average and the design of the pieces is modular allowing repair and replacement of parts, thus extending their life cycle. Ide Genève advocates for an approach where sustainability, transparency and innovation inform all aspects of the design and manufacturing process. Just recently, Ide Genève pushed the envelope yet further, partnering with Notpla to develop the first home compostable packaging in luxury watchmaking. Ide Genève's co-founder is Nicolas Freudiger, 
he stopped by Monocle's Zurich HQ, and from there, he chatted to our business editor, David Hadari. David began by asking Nicola how his fascination with and passion for watchmaking began. I grew up in Switzerland, in Geneva, and my best friend Cedric, the co-founder and the watchmaker of the company, went to do his apprenticeship at uh, Vacheron Constantin in Geneva. And we were 14, 15 years old, and I was amazed by this heritage. I usually say we're kids from the Swiss-made industry, and that's the truth, that's the reality. And right now what we're trying is really to push this industry a bit further. By doing so, we really want to do it nicely and, and of course, with a lot of humility. So I was working corporate in Zurich, and I asked myself really a question, which was really, what's my daily impact on the society that I live in? And I realized that I was doing a lot of digital transaction and not much really having the impact I wanted. And I worked with different NGOs during my holidays, and I was really craving for that impact. And one day as well, I decided to not have regrets because we talked so much about the brand. And, and, and I imagined myself, you know, with 65 years old and, and retiring and having the biggest regret if I didn't just try it. So this is why I think this is where the click happened. And I decided to quit and really go for it. Our approach towards the industry is as well, we, we want to stay humble. I think we have a lot of humility here because we're just a drop in the ocean. We believe that luxury needs to be redefined in 2022. It's about really having the least impact because today the luxury industry is quite often seen as the industry of inequalities and we want to change that. We're quite disrupting luxury and redefining it and it can disturb heritage brands. But what we've tried to do is actually try to collaborate and we have got some plans as well in the future to collaborate with heritage brands because for us collaboration is a key to accelerate the transition. And again, we're coming back really to our mission, which is to influence the industry to go towards a better sustainability. Sure. I guess one thing that's probably important to ask you is how are the financials of the company? How long have you been going for? When did you first make a profit? And how are your orders looking? Right now, at the moment, we're a very young startup. We started in, in December 2020. It was the second wave of COVID in Switzerland. So quite a Funny time to launch a watch brand, but we could actually, through a very personalized event, do a crowdfunding. So on the first collection, we sold the 300 watches of our first collection, making about 430K in profits. And now we relaunched the second collection, which is in production at the moment and in pre-order on our website, idwatch.ch. And it's been going well. We've got good traction. And really right now we, we had as well our first appearance in a watch fair in Geneva this year. And that's the, the will for us is to open as well retailers worldwide. But again, really thinking one step at a time and focusing mostly in Europe. We have a point of sale now in Paris and that, that's a, already a huge step for a startup. It's going well and we try to, of course, maintain quality and consistency in everything that we do. And just before we, we drill down a bit on some of those repurposes and the places you get your materials from, maybe you could talk to me a little bit about the impetus for starting this company with recycled materials. What was the driving force behind that? So to give you as well more details, I quit my job in 2019 uh, when I was working in Zurich and I went back to Geneva with new ideas and wanting to leave this positive legacy, this positive heritage. I took a class on circular economy in Geneva. I really liked it, the, the fact that you can combine both worlds, you know, making sure that 
okay, you have a product that is viable financially and making sure by quantifying your impact, making sure you have the, the best impact possible. And we know you're not able to consume without consumption, <laughs> but in the end, I think the role here of Luxury is really to have the least impact possible in 2022. And we set ourselves this target. So we started mapping out the ecosystem around the watch itself. A watch is a lot about the ego of a person. And we decided to go from ego to eco and build really ecosystem instead of an ego system where we really looked at all the stakeholders in the value chain. And we noticed that on the raw materials, which was the most complex problem, we look at the reports on the watchmaking industry and they were telling us, you know, there are opportunities here, but first being more transparent and second, having more traceability. So I've started with this in mind. We decided to have full traceability from waste to luxury goods. And we succeeded by, I will give you one example that touches our product, which is the stainless steel we use. The stainless steel actually we source from about 40 companies in Jura. So this is the rural part of Switzerland. And those 40 companies give us their waste to production waste. And we actually sort it and isolate the best quality, which is the 4441, sort of the Rolls-Royce of stainless steel. And this stainless steel, actually, we remelt within 200 kilometers. We've certified the stainless steel as well by an independent firm called Quantis in Lausanne as being 10 times lower in terms of carbon footprint than the industry standard. We like to call this new stainless steel the new gold of Switzerland, because actually it's about putting value behind the work of recycling in Switzerland. And that's something we would like to showcase because I meet people in these recycling facilities that have so much passion about recycling and recycling well. And we would like to showcase that as a luxury brand. And that's probably here what's interesting about our universe <laughs> is that we, we, we like to talk about who's behind the watch, of course, and who's behind as well the raw materials. So that's quite clear example of, of, of circularity in, in our product. So that's the steel that goes into your watches. What about the other parts? Where do they come from? The strap this year, we're the first brand to launch a strap that is at the end of the life cycle, industrial compostable. That means we take it back and uh, we put it in a digester, which runs at 53 degrees Celsius for 15 days and actually gets eaten by microbes and bacteria and will produce biogas. So our straps in the end, at the end of the life cycle, which is about one, two, three years, when worn every day, we take it back and we can compost them. And, and that's quite interesting because here it's not about home compostability, it's really industrial compostable. And we raise awareness on those topics that are important. And when I met the person at the industrial compost facility, the director, which is about 65 years old, he straight away understood why we are here and discussing this potential collaboration with him. I didn't have to say much. <laughs> I just explained to him what is our role within the industry and he understood and he definitely took part of it. We even have an interview with him and I love actually to listen to those people that actually have this technology and because they need more attention. And I think today in 2022, the Swiss watchmaking industry can be a very good vitrine for those projects. One other example, uh, now we're going back to the material. So the material is actually produced in the UK. It's a local startup called Biophilica from Miura. 
And with Mira, we had a contact almost two years ago now. I reached out to her and I said, hey, I really like what you're doing. And she she makes sort of a, a, an alternative to leather made out of 100% vegetable compost sourced from the London parks. And I thought this is a great idea and I would like to, to support as a watch brand. We decided to embark on a collaboration where we did a lot of the testing. This is, I think, where the sweet, sweet spot is. You know, we have high standard of qualities because, I mean, you need to be on the, someone's wrist 365 days a year. So it's quite challenging. There's the sweat, the acidity, the torsion. So it, it's a good way to test the material, you know, to having it on the wrist. And we decided to do a lot of testing. And after 17 prototypes, we came to the right formula. And early this year, we launched together this industrial compostable strap for in the, in the watchmaking industry. And I think this is a great collaboration, a great synergies between two startups based in Europe that collaborate together with one mission, which is really to disrupt the industry. When I talk about her material, I like to say that this is a next-gen material, right? So you have the first alternatives that have a bit of percentage of plastic still inside. And this material that Mira is developing is really the next-gen because it is really 100% made out of vegetable compost. And that's the kind of eco-innovation we would like to showcase on our product. Idée Genève's co-founder, Nicolas Freudiger. You can learn more about Nicolas and his colleagues and their passion for changing the watchmaking industry and the luxury sector. Head to idwatch.cf now. That's all for this week. The programme was mixed and edited by Jack Dewars. My thanks to him as ever. And thanks once again to Ross and Christy and all the Subdial team and to Nicola and everyone at Idée Genève. You can listen again and find out more about the entrepreneurs at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs. <laughs>